Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 24 this morning. You can find it on page 979 in the Bibles that are provided there in the chairs. We've finally come to the end of our series on the book of Ephesians, and I I just have to say that I'm really sad to see it go. This has been a tremendous book. It's been a real blessing and encouragement to my soul, and I pray that it has to you as well. I mean, the Lord has taught us much through this book. You know, I began this series by quoting from saints who have gone before us about John Calvin's favorite letter, that this Ephesians is the crown of Paul's writings and the divinest composition of man. Well, now after well over a year in this book, I can say with some confidence that I believe that they're right. God has taught us so much in this book, and and I pray that we would take it to heart. We've covered many wonderful themes, many glorious truths throughout this letter, but if there's one thing that stands out more than anything else, if there's one takeaway that I could hope and pray for you, it's that we understand more than ever before our union with Christ. I mean, I've made it the theme to this series as we've been going through it. All of us who have truly trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin and the hope of eternal life, we have been united in Christ. And and through our union with Christ, we are now united vertically with God. We have been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. We have been adopted by the God whom we had once spurned and hated and rejected and lived as enemies towards. By His grace, He has saved us and He has sealed us with His promised Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. We now have this continual relationship, this ongoing access to our Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit. But that union with Christ that we have is not just vertical. It's horizontal as well. It changes our relationships with each other. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and our union with him, followers of Christ have now been united with each other. We now have koinonia. We have fellowship. We have communion one with another. We are now beloved brothers and sisters in God's own family. We are now fellow citizens of God's one kingdom. And we are meant to live that way, to display that in every aspect of our lives. And so for 45 sermons, and now 46 after this one, I have tried, I have labored to faithfully unpack what it means for us to have union with Christ. All of the ramifications, all of the beauty, all of the glory that comes along with that. It changes everything about us. It changes who we are. It changes what we live for. It changes our relationship to God. And it changes our relationship with each other and with everything else on the planet. And that is especially true of the church. Unfortunately, most professing Christians, at least professing Christians in America, miss that. Ephesians doesn't allow us to define Christianity on our own terms. Our union with Christ doesn't allow us to reduce Christianity to a choice or to a self-declaration. I know that I am in Christ because I have repented of my sin and believed in Jesus at one point in my life. I've saved this sinner's prayer. I'm good. No, our union with Christ does more than that. It doesn't allow us to divorce our faith from our practice, from our beliefs, from the way that we live, from our ambitions and our pursuits away from his. And nor does it allow us to separate Christ from his body, his bride, the church. Your union with Christ is not about you. And this is where we go wrong. It's not about your wants. It's not about your desires. It's not about your felt needs. Your union with Christ is about him. 
It's not about who you say that you are, what you're willing or unwilling to do for Jesus. Our union with Christ is about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. His saving work, his grace being manifest towards us, bringing us into a saving and life-transforming relationship with our adopted heavenly father, the one whom we spurned, the one whom we rejected. He has brought us in. It's about God, by his grace, making us alive together with Christ. About him bringing us and drawing us near to himself, of making us one and joining us together as fellow citizens of God's kingdom, as beloved brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God's own family, being built together into one holy temple in the Lord. Living together in such unity as a body, We help one another to turn away from sin and to grow more and more and more and more into the image of God's Son. Christianity is not something then that you add to your life in as little or as much quantity as you would prefer. Christ is now your life. You are united in Him and all that comes with him, all of the blessings and all of the benefits that we receive, all of these glorious truths, all of these glorious benefits are ours, as well as all of the challenges that come with living together as the church in the midst of this present darkness. Our union with Christ changes everything. And that is especially true of our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this morning in this conclusion of this letter, we are going to see firsthand how our union with Christ affects our relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ's church. And I pray that it causes us to really think deeply about our own relationships, where we're actually at, how we're actually living, and what we're actually living for. And I pray that it encourages us and motivates us and spurs us on to live together in union with Christ. In these final words of Ephesians, we will see that those who are united in Christ earnestly seek to care for and bless each other. Seems like a really simple, obvious truth, but one that I think can challenge every single one of us in this room. Those who are united in Christ earnestly seek to care for and bless each other. So please read with me Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. Paul writes, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now what we see happening in this conclusion is some of the fruit of our union with Christ. This is what happens when we as Christians grasp the significance of our union with him and with each other. And what happens uh, when we truly understand our unity in Christ. We have fellowship. We have communion like never before. And certainly there are other implications. We've talked about many others. But this text identifies two horizontal results of our union with Christ. And the first is that because we are united in Christ, we show care and concern for our brethren. I know that that's an archaic word, brethren, but it's right there in the text, so I'm going to keep it. I know it says brothers, it's brethren, it doesn't matter, all right? Now this... This seems obvious, right? We look at this text and, you know, if you're probably reading this in your daily Bible reading, you just kind of pass over this because it's just, it seems like an obligatory conclusion, seems like niceties to just kind of tie things up so we can move on to whatever comes next. And we miss all of the significance that is actually right here in this text. There's a lot going on here. I mean, let's think about context for a minute, okay? We often forget about this context, right? Who's writing this? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, okay? Paul's a big deal. You get that, right? 
In this day and age, Paul is a big thing. He's one of the main leaders in the early church. He was appointed by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ himself to this position. He has written, he's one of the few men who is these holy men taught by the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. He actually wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament. That's more than anyone else. Through his preaching, thousands of people have come to faith in Christ including many of these Ephesians that he's writing to. Not to mention how his writings have impacted so many millions and millions of Christians throughout these almost 2,000 years. And through his leadership, dozens if not hundreds of churches have been started. Paul himself training up their leaders The church in Ephesus included. I mean, this guy, Paul, this apostle, he's a big shot authority among early Christians. He is an exalted position. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. How many CEOs of major companies do you know who have handwritten letters to low-rung employees of a branch in another country whom they know personally? How many celebrities send out one of their managers to have a face-to-face with a group of adoring fans about how she is and what she's doing? How many times has the President of the United States sent out a personal friend and cabinet member to spend extended time encouraging and building up the local government and townspeople of a place like Urbana, Illinois? I'd venture to say not often, right? It's a rarity, because we, when we think about positions, when we think about authority, when we think about prominence, that leads to seclusion. It leads to isolation. It leads to self-exaltation, to entitlement, to this inflated sense of self-importance. But not with Paul. Now why? I mean, we, we see Paul praying for, at all times, for all the saints. We see Paul writing letters to these churches and he's sending friends and fellow ministers to visit them. We see him trying to go to them himself. He's doing anything and everything that he can to build them up, to encourage them, to serve them, to give to them, to bless them. He's not trying to take from them. He's trying to give. Why? Well, because Paul understands what it means to be united in Christ. Paul understands the mutual responsibility we have one for another. Paul understands the calling that he's been given. He's not to use his position of authority for his own personal gain to make much of himself, but like Christ as a means of serving those whom the Lord has placed in his care. That's Paul's position, but what about Paul's predicament? Where is Paul? Where's he writing from? He's currently in prison. He's currently in chains. This man has been beaten and mocked, hated and pursued across countries. All because he follows Christ and he shares Christ with others. Paul has done nothing wrong. He's only shared the gospel, the message that gives eternal life and hope, freedom from sin and death and God's everlasting judgment in hell. That is a glorious message. And yet he is being abused and imprisoned and will eventually be killed for it. That's his situation. He's in prison. And and, and the Ephesians, they're concerned about this. They're worried about Paul. They want to know, is he being mistreated? Does he have enough to eat? Can anything be done to help him? Is Paul losing heart? Because he's the apostle, the almighty apostle, and there he is in prison. They want to know how he is because they love Paul and they're concerned about his well-being. Now, how would you be tempted to respond to their concern? I mean, there you are. I mean, think about this. You get this high and mighty position and you're in chains. Somebody writes to you, or they send word to you, they're concerned about how you are, how would you respond? Would you grumble and complain about your situation, your predicament? Would you kind of have this big woe is me moment? Would you respond by saying, you know what, this is not fair. I am an apostle. I do not deserve this. Would you be pleading with him? Please, somebody, just get me out of this mess. Help me. Do whatever you can. Would you be frustrated and be like, you know what, that's it. I quit. I'm done. How does Paul respond? I want you to keep your finger here. 
I want you to flip back to chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Do you hear how he called himself there? A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul understands that his imprisonment at that time is the way that he is to serve both Christ and those whom the Lord has placed under his care. And he does this by proclaiming and displaying and commending the gospel through words and thoughts and attitudes and actions, even in his chains. He's not consumed by his position. He's not consumed by his predicament. Chapter 3, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This statement blows my mind. All right. Here's Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus in prison. And what's he saying? Hey, don't worry about me. I'm worried about you. I I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be built up. I I don't want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering. This is actually for your glory. This is for your good. I understand that this is my place, that this is my position. And so I'm willing to do this for your glory. In chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Your life in Christ, you must understand, is not dependent upon your circumstances or your conditions or your decisions, but upon God's call for you. I am a prisoner for the Lord. That's my identity. That's who I am. That's what I've been called to be. And so I'm willing to receive that. And I urge you to walk in a manner that reflects the glory that you have been given, despite your circumstances, even if that comes with suffering. And then in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, When Paul asks for prayer, Paul doesn't pray, hey, please pray that they recognize just how great I am. Please pray that they relieve me, that that my burden is relieved, that I should not have to suffer this injustice against me. No, this is how he prays. He says, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's how he prays. Paul recognizes that he is an ambassador in chains. He gets his significance of his union with Christ. He knows that his suffering is not meaningless and pointless. He is an ambassador in chains, speaking and living not for himself, but for Christ. And so he longs to proclaim the gospel boldly, which is how he ought to speak. This is how Paul views his position and his predicament. And in light of all that, what does Paul do? Paul writes letters to his fellow brothers and sisters in Ephesus, just as he did to those in Philippi and those in Colossae, just as he did to his brother Timothy and Titus and Philemon to encourage them. I mean, we don't even know how many other letters Paul wrote, but he wants them to know, as it says in verse 21, how I am and what I am doing. He does this not to make much of himself, but to encourage and build them up. He wants to encourage their hearts. Even in prison, Paul is still active. He's still serving. He's still proclaiming the gospel. He's still training leaders. He's still encouraging the churches. His call to Christ is not dependent upon his circumstances or his schedule or what is most convenient or conducive to him, how he feels about it. He has a responsibility to his brothers and sisters. He knows that there's still much to be done. And so Paul doesn't get discouraged or stop working. He presses on in the strength that the Lord supplies. He focuses more on Christ and on his fellow believers than he does on himself. His goal is not to exalt himself or to be absorbed by his own issues, but to edify and to build up the church. He cares more about them than he does for himself. And his ultimate goal, his ultimate purpose in all of that is to see Christ glorified. And so again, he says in verse 21 that he sends Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Now, I just love this point. Right? I mean, it's so, such a minor thing, but it's just significant to me that you got to love the fact that Paul, who is unfairly imprisoned apostle, even takes a minute from, uh, just stops encouraging the church in Ephesus for that moment to commend Tychicus to them. 
right? He's like, this guy can't help but encourage and build up and edify and commend. Tychicus shows up five times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, we learn that he's from the province of Asia Minor. So he's from the same region, kind of the same state as these Ephesians are. It's probably there when Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Miletus shortly before his imprisonment. That's important detail because we're going to come back to that. Tychicus traveled a good deal with Paul. He was a beloved brother to Paul, a faithful minister in the Lord. Paul trusted him and would often send him to other churches so that uh, he could, Paul could build up and encourage the churches there. Tychicus would kind of serve as an interim pastor in places, kind of like what we're doing with Leroy, right? But allow those pastors to get away and to come and to find Paul and to be encouraged there with him, by him. We see that happening with Timothy and Titus in in Titus chapter 3 and soon to be in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Tychicus was the one who would deliver this letter to the Ephesians in the letters of Colossians and Philemon at Colossae. And so Paul wants to make sure that they receive him well, that they realize, they recognize his trustworthiness and his affection, his faithfulness and authority. He wants them to receive Tychicus with the same love and respect that they would Paul. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He is a good and faithful servant. I mean, what a commendation. And he will tell you everything that has been going on. And again, I think that this points to the Ephesians' authentic care and concern for Paul. They want to know everything that has happened. And so Paul sends his dear friend and a fellow laborer to them. And friends, is this not just like Christ? I mean, you think about, you read the Gospels, you read the end of John, you read the end of Luke, and there's Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of the universe, And he's hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. Got a lot going on right here. What is he doing? He's ministering to others. He's comforting the repentant thief who's hanging next to him. He's pleading to his father on behalf of his killers. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he's making arrangements with John to care for his mother all while he's hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And here we see the apostle Paul in prison for his faith, and yet he is not concerned for himself, but for the well-being of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he sends his dearly loved brother, his fellow minister in the gospel, Tychicus, to them for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, And that he may encourage your hearts. Friends, you have to understand that this is a heartfelt, soul-level connection here. This is not limited by location or by convenience or circumstance or whenever it can fit into the block of time on my schedule. Paul loves the Ephesians and they love him and they are willing to make sacrifices and to work hard to purposefully encourage one another. This is fellowship. This is communion. I really want you to understand the depth of this union with Christ between Paul and the Ephesians. So keep your finger here and turn to Acts 20 verses 17 through 38. Acts 20, 17 through 38. Paul at this time is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that he is about to be imprisoned for his faith in Christ and he wants to see the elders of the church in Ephesus one last Time before his incarceration. So, beginning in Acts 20, verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. 
But I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day. To admonish everyone with tears. Verse 32. And now... Commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36. And when they had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And he accompanied, and they accompanied him to the ship. Friends, there is, these are more the words of a man who happened to really like people who really liked him. These are the words of a man who's been given responsibility to care for their souls and their responses of those who deeply, deeply care for his. They love each other. There is a spiritual union here that results in Christ-like love and concern, mutual accountability and responsibility, and of shared encouragement and discipleship one of another. And so when Paul says that he sent Tychicus to encourage their hearts, it doesn't mean that he's simply trying to make them feel better about themselves. But that their souls would be encouraged in Christ. Paul wrote this letter so that their hearts would not be hardened towards sin but, or towards each other. He has prayed that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they would truly grasp all that is theirs through their union with Christ and that God would strengthen them so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith so that they might sing and make melody to the Lord together in one heart and so that they might do the will of God with a sincere heart. The authentic care and concern that we see here between Paul and the Ephesians and the Ephesians and Paul and throughout the rest of the New Testament is because they realize the significance of their union with Christ. We were all once dead in our sin. We were all once enslaved by the world and by our own selfish, self-seeking pursuits of this world. We were all once dead in our sin, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But as Caleb read earlier, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, get this, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And unfortunately our translations leave off two important words because of their redundancy. But it says, and raised us up together with Christ and seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. You see union with Christ in that. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, our union with Christ removes any and all social barriers that we would try to erect between each other in our sin. Any, any just 
means that we would try to separate and isolate ourselves from one from another, whether that be age or race or language or any type of personal preference. You know, like, you know, I, I want to dress this way. I want to hang out with people that dress just like me. I want to hang out with people that do this thing that is just like me. It, it, the gospel destroys all that. Christ himself makes peace. He draws us together. He joins us. He builds us together into a dwelling place for God so that we might have nothing in common but Christ. But that means everything. All of that other rubbish is what it is. It's garbage. It doesn't matter. Your skin color doesn't matter. Your location, your pay grade, it doesn't matter. Size of house that you live in, it doesn't matter. What you do for a living, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been called, according to chapter 4, verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain it. We don't create it. We don't build it. It's ours. We maintain it. We keep it up. This is given to us through the Holy Spirit in the bond that we, of peace that we have through our reconciliation in Christ. And that requires all humility and gentleness with patience. It requires us to bear with one another in love as we seek to build up the body of Christ towards maturity in him and not just seek ourselves and our own gratification. Friends, this is what it means to have fellowship. Communion with the saints is the fruit of our union with Christ. This is not optional for those who are in Christ. This love and care and devotion that we see in this passage is meant to be characteristic of those who are united in Christ. You have to understand that this is not an exceptional situation. This is not just a special point and a special time. This is what Paul has told us throughout Ephesians is to be lived out in the church because we are united, because we are joined in Christ. And unfortunately, American Christianity looks more like the self-indulgent, comfort and convenience-seeking, materialistic individualism of our unbelieving culture more than it does the church that we read about in Ephesus. American Christianity breeds selfishness and isolation rather than love and community. It breeds consumerism. And we've all been affected by it. We're all knee-deep, neck-deep in it. What am I saying knee? We're neck-deep in it. We're drowning in it. Many so-called Christians teach that the only thing that really matters is what you think about your relationship with Jesus. And that's it. And how, not how our union with Christ changes who we are and the way we live together so that we display, that we display with our lives the unifying and transforming power of the gospel as we live together. Friends, that's what the church is for. That's what it's meant to do. And so the questions become, is this what your life displays? When, when people look at your relationships with other believers in Christ, do they see unity Life-transforming unity in a way that crosses any and all social barriers? Are you visibly and tangibly, sacrificially loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you tend to just kind of isolate yourself from them? Do you love them and view them as closer, closer than your family? Because according to Jesus in Mark chapter 3, our true family those who do the will of God. Do you pray for them? Do you follow up with them on how things are going? Or do you only want them to do that for you? Do you regularly serve them with a glad heart? Or do you serve only yourself? Do you share in one another's burdens? Or are you trying to just dump all of your burdens off on someone else? Are you seeking to faithfully minister the gospel to them? Are you regularly encouraging them in Christ? Or do you even think about that? Are you committed to their discipleship? And is that reflected in your commitment to membership in a local body? Are you seeking to share life with your loved ones? Or do you just pencil acquaintances from the church into those open slots in your calendar? 
Do you keep up with missionaries or former members who have gone out from our fellowship? Because you want to know how they're doing, what they've been doing, how you can pray for them. Friends, these are not options. I want you to hear me very, very carefully, right? I, I, get, I get pigeonholed as like this like uber church guy, you know? These are not my opinions. I didn't just come to these conclusions. I'm just reading it straight out of the text. This is God's design. This is not mine. This is what he wants for us. And because that is the case, these become gospel issues. This is tied to our understanding of the gospel. Not that we are saved or unsaved by our relationships with each other, but it's a misunderstanding of what it means to be united in Christ. It's a misunderstanding of our union with Christ, which is central to the gospel. So it becomes a gospel issue for us. I mean, how can we say, according to John, 1 John, how can we say that we love Christ and have fellowship with him when we hate our brothers? Now, when he says hate, we kind of dismiss that because we're thinking, okay, antagonism towards one another. But no, what he really means is indifference. What he means is putting myself before all of you. That's hate. Friends, these are, these are not options for us. When you look at the person next to you or just down the road from you, are you seeking to know them and to grow in your love for them? I mean, do you really see him or her as a beloved brother or sister in Christ? Do you see what we've just read about in Ephesians 6 and Acts 20 happening in your relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters around you? Do you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Or do you weep when they rejoice and you rejoice when they weep? If not, then it's an indication of a misunderstanding of what it means to be united in Christ. And apparently, that means that I haven't done my job faithfully in Ephesians. So maybe I should just start from the beginning. I don't know. So turn into your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, I, I would encourage you, though, to go back and read carefully. To go back and listen to the sermons. To be challenged by what it truly means to be united in Christ. Because it's there on every line of every page. Now... That being said, I want to encourage you guys and build you up. I do. because, And, and i got to tell you, I see this happening more and more and more in the life of our church. And it's so encouraging. It's such a blessing. I see many of you serving as glad-hearted ambassadors for Christ. I see many of you intentionally investing in the discipleship of other people around you. I see a number of you showing mutual care and concern for each other. I see one anothering happening more and more and more in the life of our church. I see mutual encouragement happening all the more every day. I, I'm so encouraged by my community group and the way that I see it happening. And it, it's such, as a leader, I can tell you it's such a blessing to just be able to step back. And to know that the church is being the church. And that I don't have to be the one to build up and to encourage all the time. That I see our other brothers and sisters right there in our community group just living and sharing life together. Praying for one another. Speaking truth to one another. It is such a blessing to see that. And so I want to encourage you guys in that. And I realize too, a lot of you guys walk in this door. Right? You come to Redeemer and you're just like, wow, these guys are real welcoming. They really kind of get community and uh, that's pretty awesome. And we just kind of settle ourselves with where we're at. You know, it's like this is more community, more love, more of a welcoming and just hospitable atmosphere than I've ever experienced before. And so uh, this is awesome. And we just kind of let that be the level. Well, let's not let that be the level. Let's pursue what we see in this text. Let's, let's pursue the full measure of fellowship in Christ. And so that's the first truth from this passage. Again, my longest point, I only have two. Because we are united in Christ, we show authentic care and concern for our brethren. And the second is like it. Because we are united in Christ, we seek God's blessing for our brethren. 
Now, what we see there in verses 23 and 24 is a double benediction. Right? One apparently is not good enough for Paul. He has to double it. He's got to give us two. Two good words of blessing that Paul prays for these saints in Ephesus. He says, peace be to you, uh, be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You see, Paul knows that God is the fount of every blessing, the one through whom all blessings flow. And so he prays to the God who gives peace and love and faith and grace that he would shower those upon his brothers and sisters in Christ so that they might take a hold of them and to be changed by them and live in light of them more and more and more. These blessings are given from God through Christ, and as we receive them from God, they are to become ours. They are to characterize our lives, and more as we see the day drawing near. And so he prays first for peace. As one pastor reminded me this week, peace is more than the cessation of hostility, this, this peace that we now have with God, that we've been reconciled to him. But peace entails the enjoyment of the total well-being that God bestows upon his people. So it's the enjoyment we have of receiving all of these blessings from Christ and living in light of them. That's peace. So through faith in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf for our sin, we now have peace with God. Peace is not something that we can achieve, that we can earn, that we can merit for ourselves, but is given by God through Christ so that we might enjoy. And we saw it back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, that that. We were all once separated from Christ, that we were all alienated from God's people, that we were strangers to all of God's promises. We were living without hope and without God in the world. That's who we were by our our own efforts. But Christ himself has brought us near. Verse 14 says that he himself is our peace. He has made us one. He has reconciled us both to God and to each other. And therefore, we are to take on and pursue that peace with each other. I've already stated chapter 4, verse 3, all of those who are in Christ now maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We do that together as the church. In chapter 6, verse 15, part of the armor of God that we are to put on is the readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. The gospel gives us peace. It reconciles and restores us to God. It gives us all of these blessings for us to enjoy, and that makes us ready. That makes us ready to pursue peace with each other, to be peacemakers one to another, but also to take that message of peace to those who are still living as enemies and rebels to God. As ambassadors in chains for Christ on their behalf so that they might have peace with him. And so we are to take up this peace that we have from God so that we might grow and be unified and be together on mission for him. Next, Paul prays for love. God has shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still haters of God, Christ died for us. Paul prays has already prayed in chapter 3 that God would strengthen us with power in our spirit through, our, through, through the Holy Spirit in our inner, inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love so that you having this foundation of God's love for you may have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so he's praying that we would come to truly understand the depth of Christ's love for us so that we might become more like him, so that we might love each other. Chapter 5, verse 2, Paul calls us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So again, the blessing that we've received from above is meant to be appropriated and to be lived out in our lives. Paul is praying that that would be so for us. And to that, in verse 23, Paul adds, with faith, love with faith. Now, people have no problem admitting to the fact that God is the one who gives peace, that God is the one who gives love, that God is the one who gives grace. But when you start talking about God giving faith, it becomes an issue. Surely God can't give us faith. Now, this is a sermon all by itself, but let me just say that the one faith that we've been given in chapter 4, verse 5, the objective truth about the gospel 
about God is given to us. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to decide what is true and what is right and what is wrong. We don't get to pick what doctrine we want to believe. We are to accept, to receive the one faith that has been delivered to all the saints. Christ himself was perfectly faithful to this one faith. He obeyed it perfectly. And because of his faith, we can now receive the one faith and be faithful to the one faith by faith. That's a little weird, so let me keep going, right? Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift from God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. And so that entire phrase, for by grace you have been saved through faith, all of that and every part of that is a gift from God. That means that faith itself is a gift from God. In chapter 3, verse 17, as I just read, Paul prays that God would strengthen us in our inner beings with power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And so apart from God strengthening us in our inner being with power through the Spirit, Christ could not dwell in our hearts through faith. So again, faith is a gift. And then in the armor of God passage, chapter 6, verse 16. This is the armor of God. This is God's armor. It's not Chet's armor. It's not Redeemer Church's armor. It's not your armor. This is the armor of God. The armor that God gives to us so that we might stand wholly opposed and fully prepared against all the schemes of the devil. Now, what is the fourth piece of armor that the Lord gives to us for that purpose? The shield of faith. We are to receive, to take up, to put on. Now, if faith was not a gift from God, why does Paul say that it is and that we must receive it and take it up? But as we do that, we grow in faith and faithfulness to God. So again, Paul is praying here that we would come to appropriate these lavish gifts, this lavish gift of faith that we have been given so that we would grow in faith and faithfulness to God. And then there's grace. Eleven times in Ephesians, Paul has spoken of the riches of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace is pardon for our sin. Grace is this ever-present power for obedience to Christ. And so here again, he prays that God's lavish grace would be towards us, that it would be received and put on so that we might become agents of God's grace towards others. That's what he's doing here. All of these gifts from God, peace, love, faith, and grace, they are from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he prays for God's continued blessing, that God would continue to pour those out, that he would shower us with them, that they would be rich and abundant and lavishly bestowed upon us so that we can take them up and live in light of them, so that we can reflect them with our lives. That's what he's praying for. Without any sense of competition or division, Paul prays for all of the saints without any regard for himself. And let's keep in mind that half of the book of Ephesians is in a prayer. That he's been extending this prayer that they would come to understand what it means to be united in Christ. That they would truly grasp all of these blessings and all of these gifts that are theirs in Christ Jesus through their union with him and that they would be able to take them up and put them on in order to display peace and love and faith and grace towards each other in their lives together because they are united in Christ. And so again, you're like, is this how we pray? I mean, we can learn a lot. We would do well to pray like Paul prayed. Do we understand our union with Christ? Is it our desire to see God's blessing manifest in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's learn from this prayer. Let's take it up. Let's pray as Paul does at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and all perseverance that God would continue to shower his blessings upon all the saints so that we all might grow together to maturity in Christ. That's what he's doing here. But friends, we have to notice that these prayers are for those who are called brothers. Praise to the brothers, all of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible, with a sincere 
and eternal love, a love that is given by God and therefore it is incorruptible, but is actively displayed in our hearts and in our actions. It is sincere. It is true. It defines who we are. Friends, do you love Christ? You know, it's one thing to say, I I believe in Jesus. I believe in the doctrines of Christianity. I call myself a Christian. It's another thing to say that I love Jesus. It's another thing to say, you know what? I am glad that he is Lord of my life. Not just my Savior, but my Lord. I'm happy to follow him. I desire, I long for him. I want to be with him. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you see that all of these spiritual blessings you've been given through him, Does that cause you to marvel? Does it cause you to wonder? Does it cause you to be grateful for all that he has done? I mean, we have peace. We have love. We have faith. We have grace. We have election. We have adoption. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. We have a glorious internal inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. We have the immeasurable greatness of God's power working towards and in and through us. We've received the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do we praise him for those gifts that we have already received? Do we recognize those as coming from him and not from ourselves? Friends, does that create in us a longing and a desire to live for him? You know, if you don't love Christ, you can't be united in him. All of these abundant blessings that Paul is praying for are far better than anything that you can gain for yourself from this world. When you look at your pursuits, when you look at your life and what you're living for, I want you to compare it to what we see Paul saying is ours in Christ. And in light of all that, all of those things that we would want to live for, they fade. They don't matter. Like, who cares what I drive? Who cares what I do? Who cares what I wear? Who cares who I rub shoulders with? None of that matters. Receive the peace and love and faith and grace that are available to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, turn away from that vain and futile attempt to live for yourself, to find joy and satisfaction in the things that this world has to offer. It will not satisfy. It will not give you life and hope and joy. But this will receive by faith in him the motive, and let that be the motivation for you loving and seeking God's blessings for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because all of us who are in Christ have been united in Christ. We are together. We have this union together. And because these spiritual blessings are already ours, let's then live in that new identity. Let's be who we now are in Christ Jesus. Let that transform and shape you. Just as we've seen in all of these glorious truths throughout the book of Ephesians, let's take them to heart and let's earnestly seek to care for and bless each other.